So I wanted to offer a few reflections tonight just on uh, something I touched into in the meditation. Can you hear me okay? Yes, it's a little bit wobbly, but usually it comes back again. So following on from last week when I spoke about equanimity, the capacity to stay balanced, to stay steady, to respond rather than to react. And people sometimes say, well, what's the difference? But to my mind, the reactions are those knee-jerk, habitual reactions that come from our more unconscious habit patterns when we're just driven by our old patterning, our old conditioning. And I think we can all see those playing out definitely in wider society. And some of us also in our lockdown, I've spoken to a few people who've um, just suddenly been aware in the pressure cooker of this situation, those long buried default patterns starting to emerge again. When we're under stress, it's much easier for those things to come out. And in Buddhist terms, these are the patterns that are rooted in greed, rooted in hatred, rooted in ignorance, also known as compulsion or and aversion and delusion. On the other hand, what I'm calling responses are more conscious and they arise from mindfulness, from a more considered understanding of the situation. And this is where equanimity comes in, because if we can, we can cultivate that capacity for non-reactivity, for resilience, for spaciousness, then we're in a better position to be able to respond skillfully instead of react automatically. And as I'm sure you all know, this is much easier to say than actually live out. So it takes practice. It's a training. So this evening, I wanted to focus on a quality that actually powerfully supports equanimity, and that's a quality of mudita, usually translated as appreciative joy or sympathetic or altruistic joy. And it's what I touched into at the end of the meditation, the heart's capacity to appreciate, to feel grateful, for our own and others' good fortune and good qualities. And on first hearing, it might sound a bit naive or maybe even self-indulgent at a time like this yeah. to be tuning into what's going well, because I think all of us are acutely aware of the suffering that's present right now in our own lives, and certainly in the lives of millions, even billions of people around the world right now. But perhaps even because of that, we need to develop the flexibility of mind that can take in the whole spectrum of our experience and not just focus on or maybe even fixate on the difficulties. And again, this is easier said than done because of what's known as the mind's inherent negativity bias just bio biologically how we're wired to pay attention more to the challenges and the potential threats than we are to what's going well. 
but as you probably know from your own experience or I know from my experience, staying glued to the news cycle constantly throughout the day is one sure way to just undermine our well-being because so much of what we're taking in there is negative. So what we can train in is to balance that out, to consciously also open up to what's going well, to acknowledge our own good qualities, our own good fortune, and all the positive things that are also happening around the world right now. So some of you are familiar with the classical teachings on the four Brahma-Vihara qualities, these qualities of kindness or metta, compassion or karuna, appreciative joy or mudita, and equanimity or upeka. And it's said that equanimity arises when we're able to open equally to the 10,000 sorrows and the 10,000 joys of life. So equanimity comes from our ability to balance the difficulties, the challenges, the distress with all that's good, beneficial, life-giving and hopeful. And it's important to notice where we pay attention because that shapes our minds, that shapes our outlooks, it shapes how we see the world. We probably can all think of people who are stuck in some kind of negative self-view and that becomes a negative worldview and then that becomes so self-reinforcing. But it's not just as simplistic as saying, oh, well, look on the bright side and everything will be okay. There's no wisdom in that. Wisdom sees the full scope of what's happening, the full range, the full spectrum of life without picking and choosing, without narrowing it down into small slices so that we can get certainty and security. So paying attention to the stories that we tell ourselves about our lives, about our world, about who we are within that is really important. Because as the Buddha said, we are what we think. With our thoughts, we make the world. And he also said, what we frequently think about and ponder upon, that will become the inclination of the mind. So uh, particularly at this time, it's very interesting to recognize the power of stories to influence us for better or for worse, stories internally and stories externally. I was recently reading the transcript of an interview between Krista Tippett and Rebecca Solnit. Some of you may know those two. Krista Tippett has a podcast series called On Being that's quite wonderful. And this uh, interview was originally aired in 2016, but it was just re-released because it's so relevant for our current situation. Rebecca Solnit's a writer and she has wrote a whole book about disasters because she lived through the 1989 earthquake in San Francisco. And then she did quite a bit of research on Hurricane Katrina in 2005. And her interest came because as she said, when all the ordinary divides and patterns are shattered, people step up to become their brother's keepers. And that personalness and connectedness brings joy, even amidst death, chaos, 
fear and loss. So this is a kind of joy that we can orient to as a support for mudita and for equanimity. It's a joy that doesn't negate the reality of chaos, of fear, of loss, of death, but it also allows those tragedies to bring out the best in us. And so Rebecca Solnit's research about the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina really led her to question some of the mainstream beliefs about humanity. And she says, why has everything we've ever been told about human nature misled us about what actually happens in these moments? What happens if we acknowledge instead as people like neuropsychologists and the Dalai Lama's research projects, and even economists are beginning to say, what happens if everything we've been told about human nature is wrong, and we're actually very generous, communitarian, altruistic beings who are distorted by the systems that we're in, not made happy by them? What if we can actually be better people in a better world? So she frames this in terms of, yes, people fall apart, but in disaster, there's also what she calls falling together, falling together, coming together. And she's highlighting that we don't pay nearly as much attention to the virtues that arise when people do come together to support each other. So in my own practice lately, I've been consciously looking for stories that orient the heart and mind in this more beneficial direction. And I found a quote that to me uh, highlights this, the importance of paying attention to stories, the stories that we tell ourselves. It's from someone called John Michael Greer. He says, knowing no stories is ignorance. Knowing many stories is wisdom. Knowing one story is death. And you might have a sense of that in your own life, those times when you've just been locked into one story. This is how it is and how the world narrows and we end up in combat, fighting with reality. So whenever a situation appears to us to be one particular way, wisdom might ask, what else is true right now? And at least in moments, we might find some flickers of mudita of appreciative joy, and this joy can sustain us and give us hope to continue. So coming back to Rebecca Solnit again, she made an interesting point about the difference between joy and happiness. And she says, and I think I agree, in some ways joy feels more spiritually inspiring than happiness does. She says, joy is such an interesting term because we hear constantly about happiness. Are you happy? Emotions are mutable. And this notion that happiness should be a steady state seems destined to make people more miserable. Joy is so much more interesting because I think we're much more aware that it's like the light at sunrise or the lightning or something. It's the epiphanies in moments and raptures, and it's not supposed to be a steady state, and that's okay. I think it's a word that comes a lot more up a lot more in spiritual life than happiness, that millstone. 
happiness. So do you get a sense of that, that mainstream culture is pushing us to constantly be happy, but that's not realistic? Joy, on the other hand, because of its momentariness, can at times be more accessible. But I think one of the challenges of feeling joy at a time like this is that we can often have a sense that it's inappropriate or maybe even self-indulgent to be experiencing anything positive when so many people are facing such challenges. But if we look at it another way, how does it help the net suffering in the world to avoid any joy that might be available to us now? So there's a Swedish proverb some of you may know. Shared joy is a double joy. Shared sorrow is a half sorrow. So if we don't allow ourselves to feel any joy, then, excuse me, <coughs> obviously we won't have any joy to share with others either. So we might even think of it as an act of generosity to allow ourselves to connect with our own delight to feel gratitude. And so we can share that with others too. And I thought of this the other day when I was talking to a friend in lockdown in London. So the whole of the UK is in lockdown at the moment, but we're allowed to go out for short periods of exercise. And she was going for her usual walk in her local park and it's spring here. And at some point she reached into her bag to find something, her phone or whatever, and she found in the bottom of her bag an old magnifying glass that she'd had for years. And so she just pulled it out and there was a tree nearby that was just starting to come into spring bud. So she thought, oh, I'll test out this magnifying glass on the tree. And she started looking at the buds on the tree in this incredible detail. And it was so enchanting that she ended up wandering around the park for ages, looking at the crocus flowers and the, all the daffodil buds and all the different spring life that was emerging with her magnifying glass. And as she was sharing this, just the image of my friend wandering around the park with her magnifying glass, looking at spring life, there was, there was something uplifting about that. But then she also said that when she came out of the park, the garbage collection was happening along the street and she watched the men picking up the rubbish and she noticed that they didn't have any protective gear and there was just this feeling of empathy for their vulnerability and appreciation for the work they were doing picking up the rubbish at that time and also anger at the unfairness of it. So the point is that her moments of joy looking at the flowers didn't disconnect her from reality. If anything, I'm guessing they made her more present to it. So she was more open to noticing the garbage workers and also more open to finding ways of doing something about it. And yet it can be hard not to feel awkward or maybe embarrassed if we recognize that on the bigger scale of things, we ourselves, are, by comparison, are doing quite well. So I was speaking to a friend in the US recently, and she was acknowledging this feeling of guilt when you know, things in the US are particularly challenging for millions of people then. 
And although she's not wealthy and she lives a pretty minimal life, compared to many people, she's doing pretty well right now because she has a roof over her head. She lives in a safe community. She has enough food to eat. She has a partner for mutual financial support. And her health is pretty good. So in the beginning, she was feeling guilt about this relatively privileged position. And perhaps in New Zealand too, New Zealand at this point at least is doing relatively well. And of course this can change at any time, but still everywhere in the world, this virus is impacting disproportionately people who are already struggling, who are marginalized, who earn less than the average income, particularly prisoners and refugees and migrants. And there's a, here in the UK, I saw a sign recently that said something like, the National Health Service is not being overrun by migrants, it is being run by migrants. And the four the first four doctors who died here in the UK are all migrants. Likewise, all the other front, many of the other frontline doctors, nurses who've died have been migrants. Likewise, the bus drivers and the delivery workers and the cleaners and all the other people who are keeping this country going during lockdown, so many of them are migrants and people who are usually invisible, who are very poorly paid, who are often completely ignored. And it's these people who are putting their lives on the line to keep the essential services going. So these kind of disparities can make us feel uneasy, uncomfortable, uh, feel guilt like my friend in the US about her privilege. But as with all forms of privilege, the invitation is, okay, we can acknowledge what we have and then look for ways to share it. So the US friend I was just talking about, she told me she had this sudden unexpected opportunity uh, through her series of connections, through meditation groups and different kinds of practice groups. She was able to connect a Chinese friend who'd received a huge donation of face masks. And this donation, the donor had requested that they go to people in Native American communities. And this Chinese person didn't know how to make contact. But my friend had contact with a particular Native American community where she lives. So she was able to put the two communities together and this Native American community had a total lack of personal protective equipment. So it was for her just the joy that came that um, all of these conditions came together, circumstances came together, and she was able to make a connection for the good. So I'm guessing that probably similar to all of you, you know, all of you are probably engaged in your own families and your neighborhoods and your communities in all kinds of ways, helping out and contributing and spreading the load of the burden in whatever ways you can. And it can be easy to dismiss our own individual efforts when we look at the scale of what we're dealing with. 
But each of these actions, no matter seemingly how small they might be, they contribute in ways that we might not know right now from our own small and individual perspective. So coming back to Rebecca Solnit again, she makes the point that this not knowing is actually the ground for hope. So it's quite a long quote, but uh, bear with me. I think it, uh, hopefully it will make sense in the context of this exploration of hope and gratitude and equanimity. She says, one of the things I'm really interested in is what are the stories we tell and what are their consequences? And are there other ways of telling the other stories that don't get told? So there I think of the, the migrants and people. And she says, hopefulness is really for me, not optimism, that everything's going to be fine and we can just sit back. That's too much like pessimism, which is that everything's going to suck and we can just sit back. She says, hope for me means a Buddhist sense of uncertainty, of coming to terms with the fact that we don't know what will happen and that there's maybe room for us to intervene. We have to let go of the certainty that people seem to love more than hope and know that we don't know what's going to happen. She says, people in this culture love certainty so much and they seem to love certainty more than hope which is why they often seize on these really kind of bitter, despondent narratives so that they know exactly what's going to happen. And that certainty seems so tragic to me. I want people to tell more complex stories and to acknowledge that sometimes we win and that there are these openings. But an opening is just an opening. You have to go through it and make something happen. And you don't always win, but if you try, you don't always lose. It's also about the unpredictability of our lives and that ground for hope. We don't know what forces are at work, who and what is going to appear, what things we may not have even noticed or may have discounted that will become a tremendous force in our lives. Hope is tough. It's tougher to be uncertain than certain. It's tougher to take chances than to be safe. And so hope is often seen as weakness because it's vulnerable, but it takes strength to enter into that vulnerability of being open to possibilities. And I'm interested in what gives people that strength. What stories, what questions, what memories, what conversations, what senses of the world around them. So that might be a good place to stop and to ask all of us that same question. What gives us strength? What helps us make sense of ourselves and the world around us? And I'd like to add another question. What role might mudita or appreciative joy play in all of this? Okay, so thank you for listening. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.